Hello, everyone. I'm Charlotte. And I'm Dina. Welcome to The Grim Curriculum. How are you feeling after the last week's sad, sad episode? Oh, man. I went into this whole thing knowing it was going to be a difficult topic to talk about. But the further we get into it and the more like individual stories we find, the harder it's getting for me. Mm -hmm. With a tragedy this huge, like it can be easy to forget that with each single person who was on that ship was a story. Like You said it best last week. We could do a whole other podcast just talking about that. Yeah, it's been taking up a lot of space in my mind, too, because, like, I keep thinking about Quig Baxter and his sad story. And I feel, I think just because of the way, and I know I said it last week, but the way we kind of razzed him when we didn't know the story. And then I I honestly would watch a movie about the romance of Quig Baxter and his lovely fiance. Like, oh, my, even though I would be a mess by the end of the story oh my god Um, absolutely and like i keep thinking about unsinkable molly brown and what a badass she was and like oh just all these different heart-wrenching stories honestly when we finished recording part two i took some time afterwards and i just thought about everything we said and i just felt so so sad Mm -hmm. like i couldn't help but feel just horribly sad about everything like some of the people on the ship like i'm gonna admit they seemed like absolute bags of human garbage during all of this like Mm -hmm. in a way that's almost hard to believe but so many people showed so much bravery and compassion in their last moments and honestly those people were failed due to the overconfidence of many of those involved in building the ship and in operating it yeah honestly a whole other podcast may not even be enough to cover all of these stories we know you're all eager for this so let's get this started. Okay, so officially welcome to part three of our Titanic series. Today we will be covering the aftermath of the sinking. Not only that, we're going to be sharing more accounts from survivors as well as talking about the stories of those who would not survive that terrible evening. As we've already seen, the tragedy of the Titanic is filled with stories of courage, cowardice, and everything in between. You're excited, we're excited, let's (laughs) not waste Anytime, let's just get back into this. All right. So when we last left off, the Titanic had broken in half at 2.20 a.m. and both pieces fell down to the bottom of the ocean. We want to take some time to talk about the ship's journey to its final resting place. And the two pieces landed a lot further apart than most people think. Yeah, they ended up about 2,000 feet apart from each other. The bow section of the ship hit the seabed at a whopping 25 miles an hour. That's 40 kilometers an hour for our fellow Canadian listeners. The impact caused the ship to carve out a large trench before it finally stopped. All of this movement caused the decks along the back of the ship to collapse. Surprisingly enough, this part of the Titanic remained in one piece. The same couldn't be said about the stern. There was still a lot of air in this part of the ship, and when it escaped, it caused the hull to fall apart completely. The bulkheads imploded and the decks collapsed on top of each other. This littered the surrounding area with debris that took hours to settle around an area of several square miles. It would not be seen again until 1985. And don't worry, like we said, we plan on discussing the discovery of the ship and its condition now, later in the episode. After the ship plunged into the water, those lucky enough found themselves on a lifeboat. 
As we all know by now, there were not even close to enough lifeboats to accommodate survivors in the event of a sinking. Many people lost their lives when the ship went down, some tragically trapped with nowhere to go. However, many were left helpless in the water that was absolutely freezing. And these people weren't exactly well-equipped to survive very long in the water. Sure, many of them had life jackets, but what little clothing they had on soon became obviously drenched with water and only weighed them down further. And if you're watching on YouTube, we're going to be sharing a photo of what these life jackets actually looked like. Charles Lytoller described the scenario well. Striking the water was like a thousand knives being driven into one's body. The temperature was 28 degrees, four degrees below freezing. Almost all of those unlucky to find themselves in the water died within the first 15 to 30 minutes. There was a lot of arguing among those in the lifeboats about whether or not they should go back for the survivors. Like we said last week, a situation like this really shows what kind of a person someone is, and unfortunately, a lot of these folks weren't exactly shining stars of morality. The entire scene was without a doubt horrifying. After the Titanic went down, the sound of crying passengers and wails of desperation were deafening. One survivor, Eva Hart, later said the following in an interview. The sounds of people drowning are something that I cannot describe to you and neither can anyone else. It's the most dreadful sound and there's a terrible silence that follows it. Isn't that just like it's haunting? For lack of a better word, it's it's chilling. Like I can't imagine sitting in a lifeboat while you're hearing you know like these wails of desperation i don't know it gives me goosebumps thinking about it and you have to keep in mind this is literally hundreds of people this isn't like a few people this is hundreds Mm -hmm. some of you probably know that when someone drowns it tends to be more silent than a lot of people expect but again if you think about the number of people in the water and the sounds of sheer terror coming from everyone it must have been so loud. I go back to the movie depiction of this in my mind, and apparently it's really accurate. This must have just been just a hopeless situation to find yourself in. Yeah, it's unimaginable, honestly. Lawrence Beasley, who we talked about before, described this as every possible emotion of human fear, despair, agony, Fierce resentment and blind anger mingled, I am certain of those, with notes of infinite surprise, as though each one were saying, how is it possible that this awful thing is happening to me that I should be caught in this death trap? He also said the sounds came as a thunderbolt, unexpected, inconceivable, incredible. No one in any of the boats standing off a few hundred yards away can have escaped the paralyzing shock of knowing that so short a distance away, a tragedy, unbelievable in its magnitude, was being enacted, which we, helpless, could in no way avert or diminish. Man, I that is put so well. The he, way he, he writes, it's like, it really puts you there in the moment, I feel. I feel like people just don't talk the way they used to. No, no, not at all. All of this was made all the more horrifying by the fact that the majority of those on the lifeboats naively thought that everyone had escaped the sinking ship. Only one lifeboat went back to look for survivors in the water. A group of brave men and women worked to tie four lifeboats together. 
Under the command of 5th Officer Harold Lowe, they went back and they were able to pull four survivors from the water. Unfortunately, one of them, first-class passenger William Hoyt, would not survive the damage done to him by being in the water for so long. Something interesting to point out is that many of the men on the lifeboats that rode away from survivors who were begging for mercy while their boats had more than enough room claimed that the people that they left behind were actually really supportive and that they even cheered them on as they left them to die. I mean, if you want to believe that, that's up to you. But we're just going to go ahead and call bullshit on that one. Like, whatever you need to tell yourself to help yourself sleep at night, sweetie. This is in interviews. And they basically say that, like, as they were rowing away from people, they were like, good luck, old chap. Uh, highly doubt. I really don't think so, sir. But okay. Yeah. Like I said, whatever helps you sleep at night. Mm Mm-hmm. Lifeboat number four didn't go all the way, but they were able to pick up eight surviving crewmen. Two of them would also not survive. When you hit water that cold, your odds of survival are incredibly low, especially if you spend a fair bit of time in it. Most of the poor people in the water didn't stand a chance, and one of those reasons was that the people on the lifeboat spent so long arguing about whether or not to go back at all. I can't believe that. (laughs) Well, you know what? No, I can, but I wish I couldn't. I agree. Whenever I'm like, man, I don't understand human beings. I definitely do. But it's just like, it's inconceivable to me that someone could be that heartless, you know? It's very disappointing. It really is. The impact that the ship made with the seabed caused the pieces that came off of it to rocket towards the surface. Some of the people in the water were able to use the pieces of the ship to help them stay afloat. Others were injured and even killed by these objects as they reached the surface at incredibly high speeds. All in all, only 10 of the survivors pulled from the water would survive. I think that you can't predict how you would react in a situation unless you've actually found yourself in it. But Mm -hmm. I can't imagine hearing all these people screaming out for help and deciding that I'm not going to do anything about it and then just listening to their cries get quieter as time goes on. Like, how can you live with that? I think even the people, obviously, that had the best of intentions that did go back to look and things like that, I'm sure most of these people, if not all, had PTSD after Oh, absolutely. One survivor, a man named Jack Thayer, actually described this quite well as well. The partly filled lifeboat standing by about 100 yards away never came back. Why on earth they never came back is a mystery. How could any human being fail to heed those cries? And that's the other thing. They were within sight of one another a lot of the time. It wasn't like they were like rowing away all in different directions, but just far enough that they couldn't swim to them. That's like, oh ah. my God. That makes me mad. Like, that just makes me upset. Uh, You know, sometimes when you're out in water like that and it's dark and it's cold and you're probably becoming, like, incoherent because you're dying of hypothermia, you're probably thinking, like, oh, I'm just getting a little closer to it. I'm getting a little closer. And all the while, they're edging slowly away from you. Yeah. Like, oh, God, it's... It's traumatic is what it is. Honestly, like this whole thing, it just makes my blood boil because it's like this is the absolute lowest of humanity, in my opinion, to be able to leave that many people behind when there is room on that damn boat. 
Yep, absolutely. There was room on the door and there was room on the boats. <laughs> there was room everywhere, damn it. And you know what else there is to point out that makes all of this so much worse? The only light that they had was from the stars in the sky and from the ship. With the Titanic gone, they were almost in pitch black darkness. Oh, <sighs> Colonel Archibald Gracie jumped from the top deck of the Titanic before it sank and found himself almost drowning after being pulled deep under the water. Miraculously, he was one of those found in the water. His account is truly devastating because the raft he was on was at risk of sinking. They had to turn many people away. Later in an interview, he described the event by saying, And we did talk about this a moment ago, so listen to this. Mm -hmm. After sinking with the ship, it appeared to me as if I was propelled by some great force through the water. This might have been occasioned by explosions under the water, and I remembered the fearful stories of people being boiled to death. Again and again, I prayed for deliverance, although I felt sure that the end had come. I had the greatest difficulty in holding my breath until I came to the surface. I knew that once I inhaled that the water would suffocate me. When I got underwater, I struck out with all my strength for the surface. I got to air again after a time, which seemed to me to be unending. There was nothing in sight save the ocean, dotted with ice and strewn with large masses of wreckage. Dying men and women all about me were groaning and crying piteously. By moving from one piece of wreckage to another, at last I reached a cork raft. Soon the raft became so full that it seemed as if she would sink if more came to board her. The crew, for self-preservation, had therefore to refuse to permit any others to climb aboard. This was the most pathetic and horrible scene of all. The piteous cries of those around us still ring in my ears, and I will remember them to my dying day. Hold on to what you have, old boy, we shouted to each man who tried to get on board. One more of you would sink us all. Many of those whom we refused answered as they went to their death, Good luck. God bless you. Without a doubt, that is so incredibly sad. So on the flip side, we do want to just take a moment to share an amazing story of survival. As sort of a morale booster, if you will. Yes. So we're going to talk about Charles Jockin. His name may not be entirely as well known as some of the other survivors, but his story is truly amazing. The fact that this man survived is nothing short of a miracle. He was one of those people who really proved to be a decent human being during all of this. We love a good hero. Yes, we do. Charles was the head baker on the Titanic, and he was actually asleep when the ship hit the iceberg. He woke up, got his shit together, and immediately ordered his bakers to go around and hand out bread to those getting onto the lifeboats. When the reality of the situation hit, they were actually among those who were literally throwing women and children on the boats against their will to save them. Because remember, at this point, most of the people on board were still so convinced that the ship was unsinkable that they refused to get off of it despite the fact that it was literally sinking. I mean, again, that insanely good marketing, I have to say. <laughs> they then threw around 50 of the chairs that decorated the promenade into the water so that there would be some form of flotation devices in the water for those with nowhere to go. 
It's believed by most that Charles Dragon would be the final survivor to leave the ship before it finally sank. He rode the topmost part of the ship into the water as it went down. He then spent two hours in the freezing cold water before he was finally rescued. And when they found him, he was actually in pretty good shape, other than the fact that his feet were a little swollen. So you may be asking yourself, how is that possible that he survived so long in the water, especially with so few injuries afterwards? Many believe that he was pretty drunk throughout all of this. And while it's a known fact that alcohol can increase the rate of hypothermia, it may actually be what saved his life. Because generally, when a person dies after falling into freezing cold water, it isn't actually from hypothermia. It's from something called the cold shock response. This is when the panic of falling into cold water causes you to inhale involuntarily and then begin breathing heavily. Often this causes water to enter your mouth and leads to you eventually drowning. And if that doesn't get you, the cold will cause your blood vessels to constrict, basically leading to full-on cardiac arrest. And if you survive all of that, then you're more likely to die of exhaustion or your body just completely shutting down. And I guess the nice thing to kind of take away from all that is that a lot of folks who survive drowning say that it feels peaceful. I don't know. Like this whole thing is a nightmare. I'm trying to find positivity here. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, you guys have felt how bad it feels when you almost get frostbite levels of like cold toes or cold fingers. And now this is your entire body from head to toe because you're soaked with freezing cold water. Like, it's just one thing after another until you just die. And it's horrid. I have actually experienced uh, pretty serious hypothermia and I've had second and third degree frostbite. And it is one of the worst, most disorienting things I have ever experienced. Like, I can't even imagine. Mine was considered not great, obviously bad. Even imagine, like, this level of that. However, all of that being said, because of the sheer amount of alcohol that Charles had consumed, he was relatively chill when he plunged into the water, which caused his body to remain in a calm state the entire time. Unfortunately, many of those who found themselves on a boat still ended up passing away. Like we mentioned before, some of the boats were collapsible and many fell off and died when the water got rough. At this point, we have 705 survivors in 20 lifeboats. And we'll remind you that the closest ship, the Carpathia, was more than three hours away. What a hopeless situation. But in hopeless situations, there are sometimes people who really go above and beyond. This brings us to another survivor story. It's finally time to talk about one of the most badass women on board this ship, Lucy Noel Martha, Countess of Roths. I actually got so excited when I saw who she was in the movie because they don't talk about what she did. And I don't even think that they mention her name, but... She is just such a gorgeous character. I love the fashion from this period. And I remember her entire aesthetic standing out so much to me when I saw this movie as a kid. Oh, yeah. I I must say... I do very much enjoy like the the fashion of that era. The Edwardian kind of style is really beautiful and classy. Rose's giant hat. Oh, Mm. 10 out of 10. That that big (laughs) bow. I love it. I love a good bow. Yes. So the Countess was on board the ship with her cousin Gladys Cherry, which 
That's such a fun name. I love that. I think that's my new favorite old-timey name. Yeah, Gladys. Gladys. I like it. I like it a lot. And they also had their maid, Roberta Maioni, with them. The three of them were rescued in lifeboat number eight, and it really didn't take long until our girl, the Countess, proved herself to be more brave than any man on board could ever hope to be. She was put in charge of the boat very quickly due to the fact that she basically got on and took control when she saw none of the other men would. Thomas Jones, who was there, put it well. I saw the way she was carrying herself and the quiet, determined manner in which she spoke, and I knew she was more of a man than most aboard, so I put her in command at the tiller. There was another woman in the boat who helped and was every minute rowing. It was she who suggested we should sing, and we sang as we rowed, starting with Pull for the Shore. We were still singing when we saw the lights of the Carpathia, and then we stopped singing and prayed. For a man of those times to give such high praise to a woman like that? Absolutely. Wow. Like, I, she must have been such a, a character. He also said that three stewards were on the boat and that they couldn't row because their hands were, and I quote, too soft. That's ridiculous. Guys. Fellas. Come on. You could have at least tried, boys. You know what? Let's not get too far into this. Otherwise, I'm going to like blow a blood vessel. (laughs) (laughs) So the sad thing about all of this is that Thomas Jones, as well as the Countess, both pushed for the boat to return and save those who were still alive in the water, but they were stopped by many of these other shining stars of men on board. Gladys Cherry would later publish a letter to Thomas Jones in the South Wales Gazette where she praised him for being a hero. Apparently, he had told her, Ladies, if any of us are saved, remember, I wanted to go back. I would rather drown with them than leave them. Thomas Jones would later present the Countess with a plaque with the number eight from the lifeboat as a thank you. In return, she gifted him a silver pocket watch. The pair actually kept in touch until 1956 when the Countess passed away. I love that. That is a nice story to have come out of this tragic, tragic situation. Yeah, the fact that they formed a lifelong friendship after this, after going through like one of the worst tragedies of their time is pretty amazing. That's one of the very, very small lights at the end of the tunnel was the sinking of the Titanic. Absolutely. At around 3.30 a.m., Hope finally arrived for the survivors. The lights of the Carpathia could be seen. About half an hour later, the Carpathia arrived. It had traveled at full speed and actually had to dodge several icebergs itself. However, it would take a few more hours before everyone could be brought on board. And when they got there, they were shocked at the amount of ice surrounding the lifeboats. They measured 20 icebergs that were over 200 feet tall, as well as a bunch of other small ones. We'll remind you, there were several reports of icebergs in the area. Unfortunately, the Titanic had not received or ignored most of them. Not only was getting to the scene difficult, bringing the survivors on board was a whole other challenge in itself. Some people were strong enough to climb ropes and get onto the ship, but the majority of people needed to be helped. Some had to be brought up in slings, and children were carried up in mailbags. Those being brought on board were eager to be reunited with their loved ones, but most of them never would. There is a quote here that we want to share from someone on board the Carpathia that we think truly describes this well. 
These others bore the impress of their time in the darkness when their people passed in an accident that seemed like an insane vision of the night. Their faces were swollen with weeping. They had drunk as deeply of sorrow as is ever given to humankind. Soon after he boarded the Carpathia, Bruce Ismay wrote a message to White Star Line saying, Deeply regret advise you. Titanic sank this morning, 15th, after collision, iceberg, resulting in serious lost life. Further particulars later. He really wasn't one for words, was he? No, I mean, it was probably a telegram sort of situation or a telegraph sort of situation. So they tend to chop it up like that. But like, still, guy, I think he could have used a few more words to describe what had happened. Don't you think? Right. By 9 a.m., everyone that had survived was rescued. More help arrived 15 minutes later, but it was too late. There was no one left to save. They agreed that the Carpathia would head to New York with the survivors, while the other two ships, the Mount Temple and the Californian, would attempt to see if anyone else remained. They would end up trying to retrieve bodies instead. The Carpathia would not arrive in New York until April 18th at 9.30 p.m. Waiting for them were over 40,000 people. And you know, we always like to talk about the response of the press when it comes to things like this. A lot of folks don't realize that one of the largest mistakes in the history of journalism was made at this time. Yeah, that's right. Because both The Star and The News, both papers from Indianapolis, reported the events as... Giant steamer hits iceberg. Wireless signals bring rescue ships to helpless Titanic off banks of Newfoundland. Work of transferring 1,400 passengers behind. Believe there will be no loss of life. Reported Titanic is in tow. Ooh, I bet you felt real stupid later, huh? Oh, this was all despite the fact that they had reported earlier that it was sinking. So they just like went ahead and was like, yeah, but it'll be fine, right? So we can just like totally send that to print. And that's the thing. People really didn't want to believe that this damn thing could sink. The following evening, they had to issue an amendment. Hopes blighted when wireless flashes that 868 onboard Carpathia are sole survivors of the big ocean catastrophe that took 1,350 to bottom of sea. White Star Line charted four ships to gather the bodies of the dead. All in all, 328 bodies. 119 of them were buried at sea due to the fact that they were badly damaged, while 209 were brought to Halifax in Nova Scotia, like we mentioned last week. The majority of the bodies were never recovered. And actually, this is where Canada played a huge role in all of this. Yeah, that's right. So the majority of the dead were actually buried in Halifax. Not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but they actually sent ships out well into May to find others, and they were successful. 59 bodies were actually shipped out by train to their families in the States, something that the majority of people simply couldn't afford. While on board the Carpathia, many of the survivors were rightfully angry. They immediately wanted to push for change regarding safety practices on ships. They all agreed that they never wanted to see anything like this happen ever again. Back in Southampton, where a shocking 549 of the survivors were from, Crowds of crying family members gathered in hopes to hear good news about their loved ones. Many of those who had worked on the ship itself were there. A lot of them would later say that they felt a sense of responsibility regarding what had happened. 
It would take four days before a list of the dead was completed. After the ship sank, countries on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean launched their very own investigations. The U.S. side was particularly concerned about the fact that a lifeboat drill had been missed and that when the time came to lower the lifeboats and get people on board, most of the crew had no idea what they were doing. The whole thing was, without a doubt, a giant mess. And this actually changed the law about lifeboats and made it so that every single passenger on board a ship had to be guaranteed a spot on a lifeboat. What a wild fucking concept, hey? Right? Like, geez, wow, how lucky. (laughs) (laughs) The UK side said that the loss of life was due to the fact that the ship collided with the iceberg and that it was the result of going at full speed. They investigated literally everything on the ship to see what had caused such a terrible thing to happen. After all, they had a lot of people to answer to. And this brought up a lot of very interesting theories. Yes, theories of the conspiracy variety. (laughs) And you know we love those. Mm -hmm. Um, We're not going to be discussing them this week, so you got to hold your horses. But we are going to do a special bonus episode next week about our favorites. Along with changes to the law, the Convention for the Safety of Life at Sea, or SOLAS, was founded, which is now considered the most important of all international agreements regarding ships. Not only that, but radio acoustic ranging navigation was developed in 1924, and this was a direct result of the sinking of the Titanic. This would later lead to the invention of sonar. However, in the summer of 1914, the First World War began, and the loss of life on the Titanic seemed like nothing compared to those lost in the war. For example, on the first day of the Battle of the Somme, more than 13 times the amount of people lost on the Titanic were killed. Tragedy and loss of life became a very common thing for people during the time, and the Titanic would fade away into memory for decades. After it sank, the Titanic would not be seen again until September 1st, 1985 by an expedition led by Dr. Robert Ballard of Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute and Jean-Louis Michel of the French Institute for Exploration of the Sea, or IFRMER. (laughs) That's quite the mouthful. That rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? (laughs) It was found 350 nautical miles off the coast of Newfoundland in international waters. Dr. Ballard testified before the U.S. Congress for it to be considered a protected maritime memorial. A year later, a plaque was placed on the ship saying that it was to be left undisturbed in memory of those who died there. A year after that, a U.S. company teamed up with Ifermer and they started to attempt to bring artifacts back up from the ship. Many of those artifacts are now museum pieces and are housed in various exhibitions around the world. I've said it before and I will say it again. I am forever going to be thankful that I got to see some of them in person. Like, it was such an amazing experience. Nowadays, the ship still sits where it has since that fateful night in 1912. However, the ship that was once a symbol of luxury and extravagance is now steadily decaying at a rate faster than ever before. There are many out there that have questioned why they don't just raise the ship up and put as much of it as they can into a museum, and the answer is simple. It would just fall apart. Archaeologist James Delgado said it best. Titanic is a wreck that the world cannot leave alone. We can't raise her, and we can't keep her forever as it is now. But we can celebrate her and let her tell her story for future generations. As it stands, it's likely that the Titanic won't see past the year 2030. So if you want to see the ship for yourself, time is running out. 
And believe it or not, you can see it for the low, low price of $250,000 per person U.S. That's right. That includes an <laughs> eight-day, seven-night voyage where you assist researchers and get to see the Titanic up close and personal for yourself. And listen, I mean this legitimately. If I had 250k to spend on something like this, I would do this in a heartbeat. Oh, like, obviously. Yes. People win the lottery and they buy a Lambo? No, I'd buy my way onto a Titanic research expedition because like TGC field trip, can we? Dude, if I win the lottery, we're fucking doing it. I'm okay, not even same joking. here. Okay, either <laughs> of us, not that I buy lottery tickets. Uh, yeah, I very rarely do. Too. Okay, maybe we should start. So I don't know. This, this needs to happen either oh, way. We got to figure this out. Absolutely. I would love that. That would be an experience for the ages for Can sure. You like, honestly, I was I, I looked into this whole thing quite a bit. And to me, I cannot imagine seeing this ship with my own eyes and what that would feel like. I think I would genuinely just cry the yep. entire time. <laughs> I, I would I would sob. Like, I can't imagine seeing that. Like, what a special thing. Something like 30 people have seen it in person. Oh, my God. That's I, this is going to go off on a, just a wee little tangent right here. Um, but we all know that I'm a gamer. I love the video games. Well, mm-hmm. we both do. Um, I'm a big fan of the Assassin's Creed series just because of the ability to visit places that either don't exist anymore or they've changed so much. Yeah. And like, um, just a little while ago, I did a big playthrough of Assassin's Creed Odyssey because I love like ancient Greek history is fucking amazing Mm -hmm. standing in the video game looking at these ancient statues and buildings and stuff and it it really i don't know it it gets me quite emotional so and that's just in a video game the ability to see something like that with your own two eyes the goddamn titanic that it's wild i can't even like to me just the fact that i saw plates from the titanic is like i'll remember that for the rest of my life being able to like just see it is oh man i could talk about that all day yeah so well we'll we'll wrap it up we're gonna spare you from that so that brings us to the end of part three of this titanic series we hope you all enjoyed it as much as you seem to enjoy our first two episodes and friendly reminder we're gonna get a little bit well a lot of bit weird next week with a special bonus titanic conspiracy theories episode yes i can't (laughs) wait we've actually had a few people send us some very interesting theories i'm excited to talk about yes i've seen them coming in on instagram Mm -hmm. and in our discord and yeah it's great to see i think this has been one of my favorite things we've ever covered I I told you, Charlotte, from the start, this meant a lot to me. And I'm (laughs) really hoping we're doing this topic justice. I wish we had more time to talk about everyone. But honestly, this isn't going to be the last time we talk about this story. We're going to cover more in the future. Thank you all so much for all your feedback and for enjoying it. Yes. Yeah, it's such an incredibly interesting topic. I also feel like I've learned a lot that I didn't know before starting this uh, for the podcast and with you. So uh, but that being said, I feel like you could learn something new every time you delved into the story again, you know, like, and also they do discover new things all the time. That's the greatest thing is just like the amount of information is really never ending. Ah, uh, so that being all said, anything else we have to say today? Yeah, our first anniversary of our debut episode is the day after this one comes out. That's also the day that we are making our super huge announcement. 
Yes. So as always, we want to thank you all for sticking around and supporting us and supporting the show. It means a lot to us, guys. It's been one hell of a year. And as usual, we want to thank everyone on our Grim VIP tiers and up over on Patreon. Huge thank you to Johnny, Lisa, Pink Flamingo 20, Bob, Brian, Hillary, and Mudkip. And uh, listen up, because how cool would it be to hear your name at the end of each episode? Right. So if that sounds like something that might make a smile come to your face, check us out on Patreon and make it happen. Do it. And we also have more merch coming very soon. Charlotte, tell us oh, about our new yes. merch. Actually, our new keychain design just came in. It's the same one as our holographic sticker with the moth the death's head moth on it uh the keychain is not holographic but it is cool anyway so i'm hopefully gonna have those up for the weekend but i will throw a post out there on the socials when it's up on etsy for you guys to look at heck yeah to keep up with the latest grim curriculum news make sure you follow us on all the social media platforms we're going to be linking all of our personal stuff below too and i have to say i love the Thanks for listening, guys. This has been The The Grim Grim Curriculum. Did you know your big toe can bear approximately 40% of your body weight? And we have a weight-bearing toe, so that means that um, it can carry more weight than all the other toes. We're going to find out I broke my foot again in like five minutes, aren't we? Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) All right, bye, everybody.